In this episode of Girls on Film, I speak to Rose Glass, the writer-director of St Maud, about mental health and loneliness. None of us really know what we might be capable of if, or, what might, or how we might behave if our own circumstances were different or changed. Um, I think you really convey her loneliness as well and how key that is. Totally. I mean, it's weird because when I was writing, I didn't really consciously think about how lonely she was. Mm. But maybe because writing stuff feels very lonely. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to the first Girls on Film of 2021. I hope you're doing okay. I'm your host, Anna Smith. And if you're feeling lonely, I'm sending you a big virtual safe hug. We're bringing you more isolation pods to keep you company, whether you're locked down in London or roaming free in Auckland. This week, I'll be chatting to director Rose Glass and actor Tuppence Middleton, who are both flying the flag for fascinating depictions of women on screen. Both their recent films tackle female mental health from the point of view of the protagonist, and they're very entertaining to boot. My first guest is Tuppence Middleton, an English actress who's appeared in a mix of indie movies and Hollywood fare, from Trap for Cinderella to Downton Abbey. She's had a great run of movies lately. She can currently be seen in Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor and she can be seen in David Fincher's Mank, which is on Netflix. I caught up with her to chat about another very interesting film that's currently on Netflix, Disappearance at Clifton Hill. Directed by Albert Shin, it's a Canadian thriller starring Middleton as a troubled young woman returning to her hometown of Niagara Falls, where she remembers witnessing a kidnapping as a child. Tuppence, welcome back to Girls on Film. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's so nice to see you again. We last saw you at the London Podcast Festival, which was really fun. Yes, when we were allowed to venture out into the real world. <laughs> I remember those things, events in real life on stages. Well, hopefully we'll do them again. But meantime, it's lovely to connect with you this way. Now, um, we're here partly to talk about disappearance at Clifton Hill. Um, now, we don't often see a female character turning private investigator in movies. Is that something that attracted you to this role? Yes, definitely. Um, also, sadly, we still don't often see um, a female character at the very centre of a film um, that is involved in a storyline that, that doesn't um, concern a man. Um, it was really nice that the, the central through line of the film um, was kind of her relationship with her sister and um, her dead mother and, and her kind of delving into that. But but yeah, that, that someone was kind of taking it upon themselves. And, and it seems sort of apt that the role of private investigator wasn't given to her. She she kind of takes on that role herself, um, which, which felt like um, something that I could imagine happening in real life. But it was also such a, a strange story and a strange script um, that it really intrigued me from the start. Can you elaborate more when you say it seems particularly apt? I think I know what you mean, but... Yeah, um, well, I think that the kind of head lead investigator character is often played by a man and the woman is the kind of sidekick or um, doesn't often get to to be in that position of control. And I think that the fact that um, 
for example, in our industry, what's going on at the moment is that you, you see women are unsatisfied, dissatisfied with the roles that they're being given. So they are writing their own. They're writing their own roles, which um, reflect the type of characters that they want to play. You know, Michaela Cole, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and and, and it seems um, something that is not unlikely that that someone gives themselves that role. So I liked that Abby in in uh, Clifton Hill was someone who kind of. Uh, took the ball by the horns and said, you know what, no one's going to help me with this, so I have to do it myself. Good afternoon, folks. We're about 10 seconds from your first glimpse of the falls. Yes, uh, I guess you're a local. I grew up here. This is a nice town, but that thing drives people crazy. Remember, I used to talk about the one-eyed boy. I remember you telling me a lot of things. I found a picture. A lot of history around these parts. An awful lot of history. Alex Mulan. Close the door. You know him. You found him in the gorge. Are they sure it was a suicide? You got a curious streak, huh? Do you know what happens when a body hits the bottom of the gorge? Think swallowing a live grenade. I want to report a kidnapping. There are no open or closed cases that match your date or description. That's it? I'm just the one who saw it. Now, the co-writer and director Albert Shin says that it's it's partly inspired by an incident that he may or may not have witnessed as a child. Is that right? How intriguing. That was something that I I was fascinated by when we first connected um, over Skype and we were talking about this film. Um, He had told me it was based on a memory of his that he had in the exact spot where we filmed. the, the lake at the kind of base of uh, Niagara Falls, where he thinks he saw a kidnapping take place. But because he was about seven years old, he didn't really trust his memory of it. And, and he said as he got older, the memory would kind of evolve and change and, and the way he would tell it would, would change. And that I found really interesting, like how much you can rely on your memories. And I think that Abby as a character has this kind of colorful past and, um, a history of being untrustworthy and so you then have this unreliable narrator on top of that so I found that a kind of really interesting mix for a, a mystery story. Well as you say she is very early on in the film established as an unreliable narrator in a very memorable um, sort of love, love scene if you want to call it that I suppose. Um, when preparing for the role how did you approach that issue of you know her maybe not even knowing herself how reliable her memory is? Well, I think that we we talked a lot, um, Albert and I talked a lot initially about um, uh, pathological liars and and how much of what they believe is truth, how much they're convincing themselves that it's truth and how much it's actually, it's intentional or not. So there was a lot of discussion about that. And I think that a large part of it for Abby is being slightly stuck in in the place that she was when she left Niagara Falls, her hometown. So there's a sense of arrested development, I think. She comes back to her hometown and she still has this kind of adolescent energy, um, whereas her sister has already moved on, has already settled down, has a good job and and, and a solid life. And Abby comes back in and sort of um, throws all of that into chaos again. And I think that with her, I felt that it wasn't malicious or necessarily always intentional. It was like compulsive. 
there's, there's something about her going home and then being confronted by all these memories that made me think about the experiences a lot of people are going through at the moment, kind of surrounded by, you know, memories and, and kind of having to confront those. And I think that when you spend a lot of time on your own, as I think Abby does, and I, I mean, I live alone and I spent my entire lockdown with a cat. So I think when you are faced with that much time in your own head, you know, there's only so many spring cleans you can do around the house. And then you start to, <laughs> you're faced with who you are and what you want to do and what you want from life. And I think with Abby, she has always been quite lonely and to escape that loneliness, she's always sort of created a new character for herself or just moved on to a new town. And we see a little bit about that, about her kind of, um, previous uh, escapade, if you would call it that, that she's gone through before she comes back to Niagara Falls. And it gives you a sense of how she escapes life and how, how she deals with it by essentially being a sort of chameleon. Did you have a clear sense ultimately whether you felt that she was definitely lying about certain things or whether she was deluded or did you kind of want to leave some of that open? Um, I think that... <sighs> There are some intentionally ambiguous moments in there. And I think that, um, that that for Albert and I was a good thing because I think that if you make it clear whether she's lying or not, I think that that, that paints her in a bad light. And I, I don't think she's a bad person. I think she's, like most of us, she's flawed. Um, she's dealing with a lot she's going through grief as well at the same time she's lost her mother and she's dealing with um her relationship with her mother and how perhaps she felt she let her down in life and i think that it's um, a coping mechanism for her a lot of the time and um i think there is a, a a sense subconsciously that perhaps she isn't entirely in touch with the truth but um yeah i think that's interesting about people who who communicate like that, who, who kind of aren't really um, in touch with sort of social etiquette and, and how to how to be in the world. I think she's one of those people who just doesn't really know who she is. And how great, as you suggest, to have that woman in the centre of the story rather than the kind of love, in, the crazy love interest or there's some kind of stereotype on the sidelines, but just a fully explored, yeah, flawed woman that you don't get because she is the protagonist and because you're really seeing everything through her eyes, you don't always get, I mean, you do get the kind of commentary on her from other people um, throughout the film, but it's really up to you what you believe. And, and she is not painted as the crazy sort of woman on the side. She is, whether you like it or not, you're stuck with her throughout the movie. And I think that, that there's something sort of charming about her you know despite all of her flaws and i think that um part of that is that you you get her version of of the story which we don't always get to see yeah her point of view and as you say i love the way that it evolves into a story about two sisters really is that another thing that attracted you yeah definitely um and interestingly when i met hannah gross who plays my sister in it she's so much like my real life sister it was like a we didn't have to go through that sort of bonding phase and, and we were you know we first met in Niagara Falls and we were about to shoot so you have to sort of fast track that intimacy in order to be believable as sisters but as soon as we got in the car together we were just like you know couldn't stop talking and we immediately had the same sense of humor and so it felt like there was 
just by pure chance this shorthand there and um because she just reminded me in so many ways of my of my real life sister <laughs> that's cute and but also you do look like you could be sisters as well it's very well cast i think yeah and i think like something about her looks a little bit like my sister it's, it's strange yeah has your sister seen the film? What did she think? No, she hasn't yet, actually. She hasn't seen it. But um, yeah, I have to, I'll have to ask her opinion when she sees it, whether she sees that or not. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, we spoke about your film Trap for Cinderella last time you came on Girls on Film. Um, do you find particularly interesting um, films that explore the mind and potentially mental health and the kind of ambiguities that we're talking about? Yeah, definitely. Um, because I think when... I was growing up, the only portrayals I saw of kind of women's mental health was often that, that kind of stereotype of the, the hysterical, crazy woman. And um, I think now we're getting to a place which has a much more mature understanding of mental health and in particular women's mental health. So you see these characters are much more nuanced and forgiving than they once were. So definitely if there's a chance to tell a story where um, a woman who is struggling isn't painted as weak or crazy then yeah i definitely um you know find myself gravitating towards that are there any other films either ones you've been in or have watched that you feel portray that in an interesting way well i always i always really loved the cassavetes film um a woman under the influence um i always thought that it was a kind of sensitive um complicated portrayal of a woman struggling um yeah i i i think that there's still a lot more room for those characters to to find their voice. Have you ever been tempted to write yourself, as you were saying a lot of women have been doing? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's so interesting um, what lockdown does to your brain. I think it, it, it kind of makes you focus on what you want from your life and your career. And, and I, I've been writing during lockdown and writing and directing is definitely something I've always wanted to do. But I think it's so funny. I think um, as a woman in the industry, you... Not only do you feel like you have to prove yourself a hundred times more than, than if you're a man, but I think that, that there's just not that innate confidence that we're given. I think I, I've, I've toyed with the idea for so long and always been too scared to show someone something that I've written. Always, um, you know, thought, well, why would they, why would they care about what I have to say? But then I think that what lockdown has done is it's sort of, it's given me that focus and. And it's made me realize that actually you don't always want to be at the mercy of other people um, with your career, that you you have a chance to take control of it and to say what you want to say. So why not? So I think it's definitely um, made me realize how much that that's something which is important to me in the future. Well, we look forward to seeing that. And apologies that my cat just made a noise. I don't know if you could hear it, but he, he's been removed. <laughs> But I would like to go back to the disappearance of Clifton Hill briefly because um, we spoke about the fact that the director, it was inspired on his experiences. What changes did you discuss with him in terms of making it a female character, if any? Um, well, I, it was so uh, interesting, actually, because I'd seen Albert's previous film, um, which was a Korean language film called In Her Place. And it was... Um, the, the two protagonists in that were also female and it was a really beautifully kind of sensitively told story very different to disappearance of clifton hill which was part of the reason i was interested because i didn't recognize it as the same director in a way it was, it was such different films such different genres and i thought how how great it was as a director to be experimenting with your voice and um and i was interested in someone who had 
you know, such a different vision. But um, yeah, so I'd already seen that film and I was really surprised when I saw that it was written and directed by a man because I, it was just so um, sensitively told and it felt so in touch with the kind of female spirit. And it was about some quite delicate issues. So I um, immediately knew I was in good hands with him um, and it didn't surprise me that he'd also written another really strong female protagonist. And I think that because there is unfortunately still um, a lack of female filmmakers in, uh, in comparison to male filmmakers, then sometimes is about seeking out those male filmmakers, writers and directors who, who write really beautifully for women. And there are many of them out there. Um, so I think that when you do find them, it's something that you really grab onto. So, so to, I think for Albert, it was never really a question whether she was going to be um, male or female. He just had this, um, this, this vision of it in his head. And although it was kind of a memory of his, I think that perhaps detaching himself from it slightly and making it a woman was a way that he could kind of look at it from the outside instead of, you know, having lived through that memory of his for, for so many years. That's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Now, we, we talked a bit about great roles for women, but what are your personal career highlights from a feminist girls on film type perspective? Hmm. Um, well, um, I think this was definitely one of the sort of more interesting, complex leads that I've played. I think that um, along the way, there have been smaller parts which have been uh, I felt really strong and really well written. Um, Trap for Cinderella, a bit, you know, being about two young women, um, that felt like a, a that was something that was really early on in my career, and that felt like um, a big kind of step forward for me. Um, the second film that I ever did, which was called Skeletons, uh, which was just a small independent movie, but it's still one of my favourite things that I've done. I really liked because the characters are actually mute for the majority of the film, but so it gives you so much more of a chance to tell a story through something other than words. And and she becomes a kind of really big part of, of this story and alongside um, the other woman in the film was Paprika Steen, um, who is a brilliant Danish actress. And she, that was a really great experience because she, I sort of thought she was so wise and I'd loved her in Festin and um, it was such a nice thing to kind of learn from watching her. Um, and I think, uh, I'm trying to think, gosh. Uh, a, a film that I just shot actually I really loved um, called Mank, uh, David Fincher film, um, where I'm playing a real life woman, but um, the age is slightly different to, to what it was in real life. but. Yeah, I think that quite often when you're playing those parts which aren't the main focus of the story but are, you know, the wife or, or the supportive wife or girlfriend, yes, that is something that as an actress you come up against a lot. But I think the important thing is that you you show the effect of that character's influence on the main character in a, in a good light, in a strong light, that it isn't just this sort of passive woman who's sitting by and watching the man be great, that it's someone who you feel kind of galvanizes that person. And I think in the current war, um, playing Mary Edison, she, that the part started as something much smaller and the director really wanted to develop her into becoming quite a significant part of um, Thomas Edison's life and and his reasons for success. And, and we weren't even sure there wasn't a huge amount written about Mary Edison, but that was just the director's take on it. He really wanted it to be, whether it was 
true to life or not. He wanted that to be the reason that kind of he propelled himself forward and, and wanted to be a success. That was Tuppence Middleton. And you can also rent or buy Disappearance at Clifton Hill online, as well as watching it on streaming. My next guest is Rose Gloss, an up-and-coming British filmmaker and one of 2019's BAFTA Breakthrough Brits. She's made a number of short films. Her debut feature, St Maud, is a riveting psychological horror that's loaded with atmosphere. It hit cinemas to rave reviews in 2020 and is due to come out on digital on the 1st of February 2021. A quick trigger warning, please bear in mind this conversation contains a brief discussion of sexual assault. Well, massive congratulations on St Maud, which was one of our films of last year and of course lives on into this year. Um, and for all the many awards nominations, um, obviously 2020 was a pretty weird year to come out in cinemas, but it did pretty well, didn't it? Yeah, it's been, I mean, I think having your first film released it's probably always a surreal experience anyway. So then having the sort of all of the global pandemic stuff on top, it's been, I just feel like I've been sort of in a daze for most of the last year. But yeah, we did get a theatrical release. I think it was in the cinemas for like a month in the end. So the smaller audiences thing balanced out with us getting probably a longer, a longer runtime than we would have done. So I don't know, in some ways it worked out better for us. Not that that's... <laughs> Good. Yeah, know. in an interesting way. I mean, we talked about this in our review of the year, but it was that was a moment of opportunity for sort of indie filmmakers, many of whom are, of course, women, or particularly last year were women. So, so there's a silver lining there. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Um, it kind of, in some, and we, I think when we were released, it was the same week that Cineworld announced their closures. So we sort of jumped onto that news story a little bit. I think. Um, I think at one yes, point, even yeah. Boris Johnson was kind of encouraging people to go to the cinema. So that. That was strange. That's fantastic. Wow. I was going to say, I did, but that pales in comparison to Boris Johnson encouraging people to, so brilliant. Um, now, we so happened course, to be like the only new release happening that week, so it was like, great, thanks. Yeah, exactly. Why not? <laughs> Jump on it. And now very soon people will be able to watch it at home, because I know a lot of people are really eager to, so from the 1st of Feb. So if people haven't seen it, um, tell us a little bit more about the concept and how it fell into place for you when you were planning the film. I'm always really bad at summarising it or pitching it, but um, so it's a, for anyone who doesn't know about it, it's, just, it's like a psychological horror film, I guess, which follows this quite strange, reclusive young woman called Maud, who's a live-in carer, uh, used to work as a nurse, and she goes to care for her newest patient, Amanda, who's dying, um, and she gets it into her head that God has sent her to this woman to save her soul before she dies. So she starts to overstretch, over, overstep her, her remit as a nurse, and things go horribly wrong. Um, and yeah, we sh it's my first film, wrote and directed it. Um, we shot it in 2018, finished sort of summer 2019. Originally it was gonna be released here in, in the US kind of last spring. I think me and my producers were sort of days away from getting on a plane to go out to LA and do this whole fancy press tour thing, which I was terrified about. Um, and then, yeah, then obviously things took a different turn. So, and then we were gonna get released in the summer in America and then that didn't happen. And, so most of last year was sort of like uh, 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 kind of waiting to see what would happen. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a ride. It's well, it's an, really is an extraordinary film. I've watched it several times and I always get something new from it. Um, it always really stands up. Um, I wanted to ask you, obviously, we're girls on film. Did you always want to write it with a mostly female cast? Was that the plan or did it just happen organically? It just happened organically, I think. Um, I mean, it was always the character, the two characters were always female in my head, but that's just sort of how they seem to fit in my head. I guess I didn't, didn't consciously think I want to make a film about women, I guess. 
And what a cast, uh, particularly, I mean, your two central actresses, talk to me about the casting process because they are just both phenomenal. Yeah, no, really, really lucked out. They're, they're phenomenal. So, so Maud, the lead character, she's played by Morvith Clark, who's a very sort of up and coming new actress. I think this, she'd been in quite a few things before, like lots of mega theatre and stuff, but this was her first lead role in a film. Um, and she's now off in New Zealand filming Lord of the Rings, like this big new Amazon TV series. I think she's playing Galadriel and she, she's not allowed to say anything about it. So um, anyway, so that's, that's more of it. And then Jennifer Ely plays Amanda, the patient who Amanda's caring for, who's this sort of fabulous retired dancer type. Um, so Jennifer was, most people know her from Pride and Prejudice in the 90s or whenever that came out, the Colin Firth one, she was Elizabeth Bennet. So I think everyone, including quite a lot of people on the crew were really surprised to find out she's actually American. A few of them are like, oh, she does a really good American accent in your <laughs> Like, you know, she is. Um, and yeah, she, so we offered her the role, um, which was a first for me, like I'd never, you know, worked with well-known actors before. So I was quite nervous about working with someone I'd never met before, I guess. Obviously I knew she's an amazing actor and I've been a fan of hers for ages, but um, that was strange. And luckily, um, turns out she's, uh, both of them are incredibly lovely, chilled, fun, easy people to work with. So that was good. <laughs> It's also darkly comic um, between the two of them. Is that something that sort of evolved from when you're writing at the script or did, did, was it enhanced by, you know, your chats with the actors and their performances? Um, I, I was hoping it would be funny. Like there were definitely bits in the script which I, which I found funny and I kept sort of having to persuade the financiers so that would be the case because the film is quite maybe a bit bleak in, in places some of the stuff but I kept sort of having to be like no but it's hopefully going to be you know fun and sort of playful and cinematic and blah 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 and I think they didn't quite believe me but luckily <laughs> both Jennifer and Morvith have, have fantastic comic timing I've got to say particularly Morvith I think she definitely they made all the bits that I was hoping would be funny funny but then added a lot more like Morvith particularly with just her physicality I think was quite um, different from what I pictured she's sort of like this little mouse sometimes kind of oh right you can. And I think people who think <laughs> yeah, that they're yeah. always right and don't realise how they're coming across are often quite funny so um, and that's probably quite a hard thing to play as an actor sort of somebody who doesn't realise they're being funny and Jeff yes, is yes. just very very dry which I love because the character could there's a sort of a side of her which is a bit sort of you know the character's a bit of a lovey and she's this retired dancer slash choreographer and you know sort of floating around this fabulous old house um, so she, it could have easily been a slightly tropey character. I think I was a bit nervous about that happening. So, mm -hmm. her, so together, but you know, that was one of the main things Jennifer brought to it. She's very wry and sort of effortless and understated. She did it perfectly. Uh, I, I want to live in her house. Um, how did <laughs> how did you approach the mood of the film with your various heads of department, particularly on the visual side? Well, so I think so. Paulina Zhivovska, who's our production designer. Um, and ben, ben Fordsman, our DOP. It's pretty much both of their first features as well. I think Paulina had done one micro, micro budget um, a year or so before. Ben had, had not done a feature before and I, I found out about him through, through some music videos that he'd done and commercials. Um, so, I try, so the first few official weeks of prep, I just tried to make sure that the three of us spent as many hours as possible just together locked in a room reading through the mm -hmm. script. Um, and making sure they both knew exactly what the main beat was in every scene, blah, blah, blah. and obviously to make sure that the conversations we were, we were I was having with each of them separately worked together. I mean, I knew I wanted the look of the film to be, 
it was always going to be quite kind of heightened and stylized mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. claustrophobic and uh, something a bit sort of seductive about it, I guess. Because it could, I don't know, you probably could tell the same story in a really bleak, naturalistic kind of way. Mm-hmm. I guess if it was more of an outside point of view watching Maud and it's just, oh, this poor sad woman struggling with her mental health and not getting the help she needs. And, and while that's obviously a big part of the story, I was much more interested in telling it through her perspective. And obviously from, from Maud's perspective, she believes that she's on this really important, exciting, sacred mission from God and, and that she's in direct communication with him. And, you know, she kind of sees these things and, and you're not sure if they're signs from God or maybe she's having hallucinations. But I wanted the audience to be, to feel what she does. So in that sense a lot of the stuff that happens between her and Amanda and Amanda's house is very kind of exciting and seductive for her. So I wanted the house to feel inviting, but also a bit intimidating and, you know, playing with, like, texture and everything. And um... Sorry, my cat's determined to get involved with this episode. You can hear he's really going for it. He's a big fan. All right, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm waffling like mad, but the visual look of it, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, and then, we, you know, and then... You know, obviously spent ages sharing images that we'd found and thought might be relevant and, and making sure we'd all seen some of the same movies. So, I don't know, stuff like Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant mm. for the sort of visual style were is, uh, films that I've, you know, loved for, for years. Um, and quite a bit of Bergman stuff. So Persona, The Silence Through a Glass Darkly um, and... Taxi Driver was one we kept talking about, but that was maybe a bit more in regards to the character than the look of it, maybe. I mean, we sort of tried to recreate a kind of limp version of 70s New York on Scarborough Seafront with all the kind of, like, neon arcade bits, and we've even fairly blatantly done this. I get that, and I love it. Uh, You mentioned the mental health aspect, especially in terms of female mental health. Have you got any pet hates to how that subject can be approached in cinema? And um, how did you personally go out? Did you go out to avoid those traps? Just trying to think. I can't, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't think of any specific examples that pissed me off or anything. But I guess maybe, I don't know, when I was writing it, I guess I was just very aware of, of wanting to get the audience to properly be inside her head and for it to mm-hmm. never just feel like this voyeuristic, oh, we're just watching this weird girl do weird stuff. I think probably one of the things that sort of interested me initially about wanting to do a story like this was how it's all too easy to see somebody behaving in a way that you think is strange or weird or doing something dangerous and or any of those, I don't know, anyone doing things that that you sort of tell yourself, oh, I would never do that. And you sort of make judgments about that person. I don't know, it's, it's kind of a lazy reaction. And that, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like you can nev- none of us really know what we might be capable of if, or, what might, or how we might behave if our own circumstances were different or changed. Um, I think you really convey her loneliness as well and how key that is. Totally. I mean, it's weird because when I was writing, I didn't really consciously think about how lonely she was. Mm. But maybe because writing stuff feels very lonely. And I think there were periods yeah. when writing it where I probably felt very lonely. Um, so I think I was so focused on trying to get the logic of, of what she was doing in regards to her relationship with God. I was so focused on the logic of that. Um, so, yeah, which is probably useful because it's maybe getting into, into Maud's mindset a little bit more, not focusing the sort of obvious elephant in the room. Dear God, here is Amanda. Well, you know that. 
Thank you for bringing us together, Lord. And thank you for this meal, which we gratefully receive. Bless Amanda's body, which is hurting now, but has done so many wonderful things. And bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness. And reach out to her like you did to me. Amen. There's a scene I'm surprised I haven't seen written about much, but I'm sure you must have um, discussed it with people before. It's the, the this drunken sex scene, which turns very dark, and then I, in my view, tackles the issue of consent. Did you do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, no one ever actually mentions it. And then I got people talking about the sex scene, and I'm like, oh, you mean the rape scene? I mean, I guess it's, yeah. it's I mean, the fact that it's sort of split into two. Maybe that's the thing that throws people a bit, because I'd say the first half is a sex scene and then halfway through isn't. But I think even that idea that one can go from one to the other um, is maybe still something that some people sort of miss. I mean, I even had people who were working on the film after we'd shot it and stuff who were like, is that a rape scene? I was like, seriously? <laughs> Awful. Um, See, that's I think why it's particularly important because it, it's something that, that, that is in some people's minds or perhaps men's minds quite a subtle shift but is it actually a huge shift for then the woman is, yeah. I mean, I, I did question when I was writing it about whether to even have to have that scene in there because I know that's sort of a bit of a trope of, you know, rape revenge kind of films and I didn't want it to be that that's the thing that makes her do what she does later in the film. Mm. Um, but I did think in the end that it, I hope anyway, what it does is that whole night, I guess, not so not just that scene, but the whole night where she kind of goes out. I just wanted it to basically be a sort of a glimpse into what her life was like before she found God. And mm -hmm. in that sense, hopefully get a slightly better understanding of why she was or has been clinging to this apparently quite weird deluded version of faith so tightly and it's like well that's your alternative if that's what you're kind of trying to run away from in some ways it's a much better way of coping with a much healthier way of coping with things like on the surface at least in the beginning her faith seems to play pretend you know perhaps quite a in some ways quite a helpful role in sort of keeping herself together um temporarily at least anyway so that and i guess also just i want to give a slight indication of I don't know, for me and more of us talked about it, we kind of felt that the, the thing that happens with the guy during that rape scene and the sex scene, that probably something, it's not the first time, I felt like that probably isn't the first time stuff like that's happened to her before. And I don't think she'd consider yeah. it rape either. Um, yeah. And in a way that just sort of says more about, I don't know, the kind of world that she's used to interacting with, the kind of way she, the sort of boundaries that she has that she maybe doesn't even recognise that as anything particularly because I think because for me the stuff that happens next it's almost like that's just kind of for me the fact that it's sort of I wanted to sort of not point to the rape too much in a way and then it's on the viewer really to, to process that and to think about it but it really stuck with me both times I watched it um, and also her, the scenes where she's going out and as you say a glimpse into her past life I thought it was very true and very sad that her only way of finding interaction with people is effectively to use her sexuality because she's not going to be able to chat to, to women and men in a friendly way in a bar like that she has to pull someone and it's tricky because obviously I don't want it to be oh look it's so terrible that she's going out and having casual sexual encounters with these strangers and sort of in a judgmentally kind of way I'm like you know obviously that in it in and of itself isn't a bad thing but yeah if it's if that's the only way you find you find it easy to 
or if that's the only way you think you're able to connect with yeah. new people, like you said, in place of actually maybe having a chat with someone first and or you know just getting to know someone on a personal level. Mm. So yeah, that that was sort of the intention behind all that kind of stuff. I, I have a question from my husband next, and I've got a, a prop here, which, which, which um, William Blake. <laughs> um, he, he and I are curious to know why you chose Blake. I mean, obviously it, it resonates with the themes, but talk to me a little bit about your decision to feature that in the film. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying I'm not, a, I'm not like a big expert on Blake, so this is all very much from my layman's vaguely art student-y sort of um, reasonings. But I, I, I think, you know, I, I needed Amanda to give Maud a gift in these one scenes. So I was trying to think what that would be. And to me, anyway, I wanted the gift to be Amanda in some way trying to reach out to Maud and sort of connect with her on the level of her faith. Like she knows that faith's a big, important thing for Maud. Maud thinks that Amanda, at this point, is convinced that Amanda is genuinely very interested in faith as well which she isn't really, but she, I think at this point she, you know, she likes Maud, she's flattered and she wants to kind of maybe reach out a bit. So I figured William Blake's bound to be, you know, Amanda's an artsy type. She's bound to have these kind of books lying around. And Blake, I mean, first I only came, I mean, obviously massively famous figure, but I, I only knew his, his artwork, which I, mm-hmm. you know, loved and just aesthetically thought was beautiful. And, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of fire and brimstone slightly fantastical um, quasi-religious kind of imagery in it but the, then when I started sort of researching him a bit more and sort of got the impression of him as somebody who, who is in a sense very um, Christian very spiritual I guess but was very critical of organised religion um, I liked that and thought that maybe that might be the sort of attitude that Amanda might have towards religion. Like I think, you know, she's probably got a more similar background with religion that, that I do you know. I imagine maybe she'd been to like some Catholic school and was sort of fairly familiar with all of it and then sort of moved away as an adult and sort of did her own thing, yes. but maybe has a part of Same her... Same here on the Catholic school front. Yeah. There you go. In that <laughs> but, you know, the idea of her being... A, I think with, her, with that, I wanted her to... I think if Maud had maybe read the book instead of just looking at the pictures and having a quick scan, then maybe maybe yes. she'd have got, she'd have gleaned something about, you know, you can be spiritual, but maybe sort of make up your own rules a bit as well. And the idea that sort of good and bad shouldn't just be a sort of black and white either or thing, that it's all kind of a spectrum and a full, you know, the full gamut of life and existence encompasses all these things and that's and that's wonderful you shouldn't you know now listen um, i'm gonna have to let you go shortly but i want to ask you uh, what are you up to next what are you working on can you reveal it no i mean no i'm but i'm 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 working on a couple of scripts i've got one which is sort of getting there uh what year it's 2021 now yes I, I would love to shoot it this year sorry I kept saying I want to shoot something next year but yeah mm-hmm. I'm hoping very much to shoot it this year it's set in America uh, and as a and as a romance of sorts um, so that's kind of I think that's what I can say at the moment but I'm, okay. although I'm, the one thing I'm sort of keep falling into is I, I, having done a few of these interviews now and, and I often get asked about like the runtime, 
and the fact that it's sort of nice and short and I've been like yes this is the big the, the main lesson that I learned making the film it's great to have a short script really really helps and now the one I'm doing now just keeps getting longer and longer and it's like 150 pages or something I'm like shit 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 not taking my own advice well however long it is we're going to watch it and we'd love you to come back on Girls and Film and talk about it thank you so much for joining us it's been a real pleasure thanks Rose thanks a lot that was Rose Glass. You can watch St Maud on digital from the 1st of February. We've been Girls on Film. Thank you to the team, executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio producer Tom Wally, assistant producer Heather Dempsey and intern Eliana J. Do follow us, message us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Rose Glass and Tuppence Middleton. We'll be back soon with another isolation pod to keep you company. See you soon and stay safe. Tell someone. See if they believe you.